Hey there, Magic Lantern listeners. If you are at all familiar with the show, you have a pretty good idea of how much that we love Halloween here. If you are a new listener to the show, you are about to find out. To celebrate the season, we have recorded a special episode that is at least mostly treats with a handful of tricks thrown in. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. This special episode of the Magic Lantern is devoted to the 31 days of Coloween. We have jointly selected 31 seasonally appropriate titles, one for every day in October, and we will discuss why you should put them on your Halloween viewing list. Welcome to episode 33, The Magic Jack-O-Lantern 2016. Let's find out how Erica made her selections for her part of the list. I wanted to include perennial favorites but also tackle some of the things that I haven't seen yet in order to really embrace the opportunity to finally get around to them this season. And I built the list to specifically put the film I'm most afraid of right in the middle so that I could just coast all the way to the end. I know like you, I always have a running list of things that I want to see. And I like to check other lists of suggestions for underseen films, different titles, things I might not have heard of. And that led me to a couple of titles. And I can tell you, I also can't wait to build next year's list. Great. Well, with my choices, I wanted to ensure that we covered a variety of subgenres and a wide swath of film history. So our combined list covers 90 years total from 1921 to 2011, including stops in every decade along the way. And it covers folk horror, found footage, body horror, giallo, ghosts, werewolves. We cover a lot of ground with this list. And we're going to have to cover that ground quickly because there are 31 entries and we don't want to make a show that's 31 hours long. So let's get going. What do you have for day one? We kicked off the month with Robin Redbreast from 1970, directed by James McTaggart, written by John Bowen, and starring Anna Cropper, Frida Bamford, Bernard Hepton, and Andy Bradford. It was originally a play for today on the BBC. After the breakup of a long-term relationship, urban sophisticate Nora seeks refuge in a remote house in the country until the eccentric locals start to become very involved in her life. And why would you recommend this one? This was the second time that I had watched it. And I think it benefits, as so many of the films that we discuss, from multiple viewings. I really liked it even more the second time because in the second viewing, I could really focus on the language and the character work. It's a very dense work. The script, I think, is worth reading on its own, and yet it becomes so much more. It comes alive with these rich and interesting characters. I like that you mentioned that you watched it two ways, because we watched it together by ourselves initially, and then we showed it to an audience the second time, which made for a completely different experience for me. We host screenings where we typically show one film a month, sometimes two, 
but for October, we show them every Saturday of the month, and this was the one that we kicked off that series with. We have a theme every year, and this year was folk horror, and this was a fantastic start to that. And why I would recommend it is because it has a female lead that is complex and interesting. It's a grown woman with the concerns of a grown woman. She's dealing with the breakdown of a relationship, the demands of a career, doubts about her self-worth and her appeal as she is entering middle age, and pagans are using her for a broodmare. So her plate is full. And if you know anything from former episodes, you know that pregnancy I find to be incredibly frightening. So that's where the scare element comes in this film. Okay, how about day two? We watched The Tunnel from 2011, directed by Carlo Ledesma, written by Enzo Tedeschi and Julian Harvey, with Beldelia, Andy Rotareda, and Steve Davis. The film focuses on an investigation into a government cover-up, which leads a journalist and her crew to a network of abandoned train tunnels deep beneath the heart of Sydney, where something horrible is lurking. I've got a special connection to this film. This was one that I heard about soon after it came out, another one of those list investigations that I've always done. The film was funded using a crowdfunding financing model as part of what's known as the 135,000 Project. The producers sold a frame of the film at $1 each in order to meet the budget that they had set, and I bought one of the frames, which entitled me to a digital download of this. And the film scared me so much, I immediately went onto their social media and said as much, and they responded back to me right away, and it made me feel like I was sort of on the ground floor of the film. I wanted to specifically include it in this list, not only because it's really scary to me, but because I really appreciate supporting projects that try to make a lot from very little. So I say, hooray for the underdogs. Why I would recommend adding this to the list is if you would like to see a found footage film that doesn't make you want to strangle everyone involved. Or vomit all over yourself. I was skeptical going in because I really do not like the found footage genre, but this one is a cut above. Partially because the conceit allows for a mixture of shooting styles, so it's not just moronic 20-somethings doing shitty, repetitive improvisation in the woods. And now we move forward to day three. On day three, we watched Seven Footprints to Satan from 1929. And that was directed by Benjamin Christensen, who also made Haxon, one of my all-time favorite Halloween treats. And it stars Thelma Todd and Creighton Hale as Jim and Eve. They are a young society couple, and they are kidnapped on the eve of his departure for Africa and brought to a mansion that is home to a strange and glamorous satanic cult. Why I would say to add this one to your list? Because once you get to the mansion, which happens pretty quickly, it is cuckoo nutso. There are dwarves popping out of secret panels, there's a gorilla gonna kill you, oddities of all sorts, too many to count, and all of it happens at a breakneck pace. I had been waiting a long time to see it, based on the stills and cast photos alone, which are crazy. And also its reputation as one of the great, quote, lost, unquote, horror films, similar to London After Midnight. It didn't quite live up to my expectations, but it is still a rollicking good time in the old dark house vein. 
Well, I love my satanic cults, strange and glamorous, not stringy and hippie. Sure. And I appreciate so much the glimpses and impressions you get of the costuming and production design, because it just makes me imagine what this would look like fully restored. And in the meantime, you can enjoy the dynamism and the crazy range of characters that you mentioned, and also the very fun twist. Okay, on to day four. We watched Eyes Without a Face from 1960, directed by Georges Franjou, adapted by Pierre Boileau from the novel by Jean Redon, and it stars Pierre Brasseur, Alida Valley, and Juliette Maniel. It's about a surgeon who goes to extremes, to say the least, to give his disfigured daughter a new face. You should watch this because it's beautiful. It's haunting. The mask is crafted unlike anything I've ever seen. Don't let it take you, our wonderful audience, as long as it took me to finally catch up with this. I think you're going to have a lot of fun spotting all of the influences and the things that it influenced. And then let me know if your favorite moment is also the one where she petted all the dogs. Why I would say to add it to your list overlaps with yours a little bit. Specifically, for cinephiles to catch all the sly allusions specifically to the third man. I love that part of it. For everyone else to watch the daughter, Christiane, she moves like a ghost through her own ruined life, and it is the most unbearably sad and beautiful thing. It's fantastic. And now we're up to day five. For day five, we watched The Skeleton of Mrs. Morales from 1960, directed by Rigelio A. Gonzalez, starring Arturo de Cordova and Amparo Reves, based on an Arthur Mackin short story. It's about a taxidermist who decides to murder his wife after having put up with 20 years of a hellish marriage, each day equally divided between her religious zealotry and her self-peeing mewling, eventually going as far as displaying her bones in his shop window. And why I would say to watch this one? Arturo de Cordova's performance. He's fantastic. He wrings every bit of sympathy out of it and clearly relishes and digs into the blackly comic aspects of it, so much so that I desperately wanted him to get away with it. He did in the source material, but the firmly entrenched Catholicism of Mexico would have none of that. I agree with you. I say watch it because he is a master. So revel in that performance and enjoy the wonderful, truly adult dialogue. Wallow in the pathos, laugh at the skeleton, and all of the other really interesting prop work that he does. We had such an interesting discussion about the Catholicism in it that I did track down the original story and skimmed through, and it is treated in a pretty lighthearted manner, which I enjoyed. I loved seeing him get away with it. Tell us about... Day 6. We've got Peeping Tom from 1960, directed by Michael Powell, and written and adapted by Leo Marx, starring Karl-Heinz Bohm, Anna Massey, and Maura Shearer. It's about a young man who murders women using a video camera to film their dying expressions of terror. This one is also on the list because it had taken me a very long time to finally get around to it, 
especially after our recent discussions of the technique of the killer point of view. We discussed it in Black Christmas and Halloween. Mm -hmm. I have to say first, I didn't end up enjoying this quite as much as I thought I would. How come? I'm still trying to decide how subversive I think it is. Do I feel that it went as far as I was hoping that it would? Now, I certainly can't quibble with the look of the film, appropriate for an Archer's film. It looks amazing. I did enjoy the performances. However, Anna Massey for me, especially in the beginning, is like everyone who talks during the movie. (laughs) Ultimately, I just wish it had gone farther. Well, that subversion is exactly why I would recommend to watch it. It's hard to put it in its proper context for a modern audience, I know, but to see a film that was so far ahead of its time in honestly addressing our capacity for evil and especially perversity that it ruined Michael Powell's career is wonderful. Powell being half of the archers, like you mentioned, along with Emmerich Pressburger, represented a so very English school of filmmaking and, more importantly, a way of life to many of his viewers in his home country. This hit those people like a bolt from the blue and must have felt like a complete betrayal. So in context, its subversion is total, I think, and I love it doubly so for that. And how about Day 7? For Day 7, we concluded our first week with my favorite adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. Directed by Reuben Mamoulian, starring Frederick March and Miriam Hopkins, and based on Robert Louis Stevenson's novella. In the story, Dr. Jekyll, pronounced Jekyll in this go-round, faces horrible consequences when he lets his dark side run wild with a potion that transforms him into the animalistic Mr. Hyde. Why is this your favorite version of the story? The story is a metaphor for a lot of things, depending on who adapts it. It can be a metaphor for addiction, or for the duality of man. The thing I love so much about this version is where Jekyll starts, as far as his philosophical position. To me, from the beginning, he is half Hyde already. He's looking for liberty, freedom from social constraints. Hyde is not simply his rampaging id. There is a good reason to throw off the shackles of pointless propriety and custom. And if that is monstrous, then call me a monster because I am 100% behind his argument. What about you? I love this one because I'm a card-carrying member of the Frederick March fan club. Mm -hmm. It has a very specific, amazing film-slash-makeup-slash-lighting technique that sets it apart from the rest. And there are some wonderful moments where I was watching Miriam Hopkins on her own just to note her reactions to what Frederick March is giving her in character. So I think her portion of the film is marked by a really excellent performance. And how much of it could have been avoided if they had just let him get married right away? Is that why we decided to have no engagement period? So you wouldn't (laughs) become a kill crazy id? (laughs) Who says I haven't? Uh Uh-oh. Moving on, day eight. We watched The White Reindeer from 1952. Directed by Eric Blomberg, who also wrote it, along with the star Miryami Kwasmenen. She also stars with Kalervo Nisila. I have to apologize. I don't know how to pronounce these Finnish names properly, so I'm so sorry. But anyway, 
It's the story of a newlywed woman who goes to the local shaman to get some help with her love life, but instead she gets turned into a white reindeer vampire, as you do. This was the second entry in our month-long movie night series of folk horror, so we watched this again with an audience. It was the first viewing for me, and what struck me immediately was the music. There's a wonderful song that kicks off the film. It's also extraordinarily beautiful. I've never seen anything like it before. This was one instance where I wished that a black and white film was in color so I could truly appreciate the costuming. Mm -hmm. It's a spare story, as many traditional folk tales are, but it's wonderful to see how an adult woman, how a modern woman in that setting reacts to what's happening to her. Now, why would you recommend this film for the list? I would recommend it for the wintry setting, the beautiful cinematography that you already mentioned. There's a section of the film that functions almost like an ethnographic travelogue. I know more about Laplanders after that hour and a half than I ever knew before, just from observing their day-to-day lives. And mostly, I would recommend it to experience the shapeshifter mythos that we usually get in werewolf movies or other films similar to that through a lens other than American or Anglo-European. That part was the most interesting part for me. For day nine, we tracked down Who Can Kill a Child? This was one that neither of us had heard of. Mm -hmm. It's from 1976, directed by Narciso Ibanez Serrador, and he also adapted the novel by Juan Jose Plans. It stars Louis Fiander and Prunella Ransom, as a couple of English tourists who arrive on an island where all the children have apparently gone crazy and then we find out have murdered all the adults. Have they gone crazy or have they just finally wised up? Within the story of the film, there's a suggestion that they're receiving some sort of a group transmission. So I'm going to say there's some brain function that's gotten altered somehow. And then they also do murder a little old man in broad daylight. So, did he have it coming, are you saying? The film implies that all adults have it coming, for the horrors they have visited on children for generations. That's very true. And with this English couple, they definitely have it coming. This film infuriated me. I'm pointing a (laughs) finger. I'm practically breaking my finger. It's so rigid. I'm so angry right now. I hated the female protagonist specifically. It starts with, who's Fellini? (laughs) She's never heard the word gracias before. I understand. It was 1976. Come on. (laughs) They persist in making the worst decisions ever in the face of facts. I still recommend it because you can learn what choices not to make. And it has a fantastic ending when she just goes plum crazy. I love it. And there's no happy ending. There's just more bloodshed and the suggestion of even more bloodshed to come. So overall, though it was a miss, I still say, check it out. Interesting. I don't consider it a miss for two specific reasons. The introduction that I mentioned that sets up this conceit that the children are finally getting revenge strays, doesn't stray, runs headlong so far into exploitation territory The opening of the film is a lengthy section of actual documentary footage of very real atrocities happening mostly to children. 
and it pushes you so far that you almost want to quit before the movie proper begins. It really tests your limits because the footage is horrifying. So I like how transgressive and explicitly button-pushing that opening is, daring you to continue. The other thing I liked was what you mentioned was a positive to me. Do you like frustration? Well, then you've hit the jackpot. (laughs) True. When I encounter characters in horror that find themselves so far out of their depth that they refuse to accept the new rules of engagement, the reality of their situation, I like to see them dealt with appropriately. Bonus answer to the title question, I could. Agreed. In this case, at least. Agreed. For day 10, we watched Black Christmas from 1974, directed by Blob... (laughs) Directed by the Blob Clark? That is a hybrid that I would watch any day. Directed by Bob Clark, sadly. Not the same as Blob Clark. Blob Clark? Okay. What are you doing? I don't know. But I did know what I was doing because we selected it for episode 31, which we discussed at length. So we're going to move on to day 11. Day 11 was The House with Laughing Windows from 1976, directed by Puppy Avati, starring Lino Capoliccio and Francesca Marciano. It is the story of a young man who is commissioned to restore a controversial mural located in the church of a small, isolated village painted by a madman who, with the help of his insane sisters, brutally tortured people through to death as an inspiration for his horrific paintings. Well, it sounds like it would be a barrel of laughs. It does, doesn't it? So is that why you would recommend it? The main reason I would recommend it, simply put, is for the ending. It was worth the ride to me. This is another of our choices that didn't quite live up to the premise for me. It's such a great idea. Because this was a first viewing for both of us. Mm -hmm. The idea is so rich with possibilities about art and life and death and sex and all of these things. But it just doesn't quite come to fruition. It meanders. It's an hour and 50 minutes long when I think it could have been easily an hour 25. I still enjoyed it. It's recommended if you like movies that are about 30 minutes longer than they need to be. No, seriously, the pace is languorous, and I do like that about it. It is sort of an antidote to the usual Italian horror mold from that time frame. Very stylish, black-gloved, unseen killer, extravagant costumes, extravagantly decorated sets. It is the polar opposite of those things. So if you would like to see a somewhat interesting Italian horror film from that time frame that doesn't adhere so closely to those Italian horror film tropes, then check this one out. Well, I don't mean to go Siskel and Ebert on you, but I would say the pace is glacial. Okay. And unnecessarily glacial. It told everything rather than showed. There's a really curious lack of music that ends up feeling unplanned. It does have a great ending, though. Yeah, it does. It could have used five times as much sex (laughs) and then cut everything that wasn't involving that basically out, left in the super awesome ending and thrown in a couple of other things, and I would have liked it a lot better. It's also got the most frigid romance I've ever seen. (laughs) So it was, I guess if we're going to say miss again, it was a miss for me. Okay. Well, day 12 takes us to one that if it was a miss for you then I know I married a crazy person. You did not. 
Jury's still out. Hey. <laughs> well, speaking of, the next film we watched was Hour of the Wolf from 1968, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman and starring Max von Sydow and Liev Ullmann. This was a major highlight of the month for me. It focuses on a vacationing artist and his pregnant wife who are on a remote Scandinavian island as the artist begins to have an emotional breakdown while confronting his repressed desires. Now, this was my first Ingmar Bergman film with Liev Ullmann, which I remember made you very angry <laughs> that I started with this one. That was my initial reaction. In retrospect, I don't feel as badly about it. And it certainly won't preclude me from getting to the rest of the body of their work. Now, I recommend this because it's beautiful. Sven Nykvist really is on his game with this. There is so much oppression and terror in his black and white. There is complete darkness and then total detail. For me, I might not have quote-unquote gotten everything in the first viewing, and I cannot wait to watch it again and unravel more meaning in it. Your reaction to that and all of this background that is necessary to fully understand this is sort of why I was a little upset that you started with this one. That's my reason to recommend it. All of the autobiographical elements, I think it's less well regarded than a lot of Bergman's acknowledged masterpieces, obviously, but I also think this is among his most personal films. It's most interesting to me in that regard, at least. Plus, how can you go wrong with Max von Sydow and Lee Volman? You can't. And they didn't. Which leads us to Day 13. Day 13 was a little unlucky for me, I felt like. For Day 13, we watched Sauna from 2008, directed by Ante Yusi Anila, starring Ville Vertanen and Tommy Aronen. It's set in 1595, after a long war between Sweden and Russia, and two brothers that are cartographers are marking the border between Finland and Russia. When they are crossing a swamp, a young girl whom they left to die earlier begins to haunt them, and the brothers seeking forgiveness arrive at a village where they find a sauna that may help them wash their sins away. The redeeming things about it? I really like the relationship between the brothers, and there is a pervasive sense of dread that runs throughout the whole thing. It doesn't have a great deal of traditional scare elements, it uses those pretty sparingly. So it's not a home run, but the setting is unique, and there are some really nice visuals. What did you find in it to recommend? I really liked the character of Eric. He is like a cross between a loaded gun and Aguirre. Tonally, I'm not sure this entirely works. Mm -hmm. I think, sadly, it benefits if you maybe don't pay too much attention okay. to certain parts of it. I rated this, I don't usually do this, but a solid B minus. Okay. For me, it was a little less than that. There are things that I really enjoyed about it. I mentioned the performance. And like with the white reindeer, I really enjoyed a glimpse into a world I will never see. I think there's some interesting symbolism going on, but again, I'm not sure it completely hits the mark. I think overall, I may have actually liked it a little bit more than you did. I would say that's the case. And I would say that's also the case for the next one. I was just about to say, speaking of, <laughs> for day 14, we watched Silver Bullet from 1985. <laughs> I have a big smile on my face. 
directed by Daniel Mateus, and written and adapted by Stephen King. It stars Gary Busey, Everett McGill, Corey Haim, and Megan Follows. It's about a werewolf terrorizing a small town inhabited by our main character, Marty, who is a paraplegic, his sister Jane, and their black sheep uncle, Red. So why is this one such a favorite for you? It's not only a favorite for me, it is a family favorite. And watching it now, I wonder why exactly that happened, because it's actually pretty violent, and I watched it soon after it came out. So, well, you know what? It actually isn't that surprising, because I watched lots of things that I had no business watching as a small child, usually of the emotional drama Mm -hmm. category, but this is pretty horrifying to me. I think it's a hell of a lot of fun. Now, I've watched it many, many times at this point, and the things I appreciate the most now are Corey Haim's performance. He has some real standout moments, especially the scene at the bridge and when he crawls back into his room. He's very believable, a very excellent young actor. I recommend it for when you want a kid adventure that's genuinely scary, and I want everyone to appreciate the majesty that is Gary Busey. Well, Gary Busey is also the reason I would recommend it, because I like to play a fun game when I'm watching it, in which I pretend that Gary Busey had no idea they were filming anything. All of that flailing around and hee-hawing was just standard operating procedure for him. That was a day in the life of the Buse. And I still think to this day, he would be amazed to know that I was in a werewolf movie? I'm sure he wrote the line, holy jumped up bald-headed Jesus Palomina. I'm sure that just came unbidden from his lips. So solid A+. (laughs) Of course. Another solid A+, at least for me, was Day 15 when we watched Penda's Finn from 1974, directed by Alan Clark, written by David Rudkin. This was another play for today. Also another of our folk horror entries in our screening series that we did. It stars Spencer Banks, John Atkinson, and Georgine Anderson. Through a series of real and imagined encounters with angels, demons, and England's pagan past, a pastor's son begins to question his religion and politics and comes to terms with his sexuality. I recommend this wholeheartedly for any time of the year. I'm reminded of a line in the film, and I recommend this because there are people in the world who would keep us children, and we can't let them. It's wonderful to explore the period when TV had the power to astound. This is a fascinating journey of self-discovery that our main character goes on, and at the outset, I wouldn't have thought that he had it in him. There's also a wonderful character in the father who is also a priest, and something you don't see every day. And finally, and possibly most importantly, When you see our main character, you will understand the struggle I go through every day with my hair. (laughs) You will know what it would look like if I didn't cut it constantly. Well, I would give your haircut and this a definite A+. Why I would recommend it? It's ambition and daring. It's not the most Halloween choice. There are very brief, mostly unexplained horror elements to it. It's more fantastic than horror, but it was a really bold move with Britain's conservative establishment in power to make something to air on the BBC 
that specifically dealt with overthrowing conservative values in your own life and exploring even gingerly your homosexuality with a backdrop that included characters as diverse as Sir Edward Elgar and the last pagan king of England, each of them giving you encouragement in that exploration. Alan Clark is no slouch, and he made some of my favorite social realist dramas, and this ranks very highly up there with the rest of those. At this point, we've really turned that halfway through the month corner. We're still coming up on the one that scared you the most. We are. We're not there yet. We have day 16 first. For that, we watched Hell Night from 1981, directed by Tom DeSimone, starring Linda Blair and Vince Van Patten. It follows a night of hazing pledges set in a crumbling manor house, during which a deformed maniac terrorizes and murders many students. At that point, I don't even have to ask why you recommend it then. (laughs) Right. Why to watch it? Do you use party as a verb? Then you should watch it. Is your fondest dream to see Vince Van Patten in his boxer shorts? Then you should watch it. I watched it anyway. (laughs) Why would you recommend it then? It's really fun, actually. I was surprised. We do set out to watch certain things that are could be considered trash, and that's not a bad thing. And I don't put this in that category at all. I heartily embrace trash, actually. You do. I do possibly to a slightly lesser extent, and I found myself really enjoying this. It's much better than the title might suggest. Linda Blair is so lovable. She is so wholesome and yet acerbic. I really enjoy her. I would also recommend it if you need something that's a bit of a palate cleanser, which is also how it functioned on our list just slightly before we moved on to something that was terribly grim. And that was day 17. Oh boy. Day 17 was the day that I had been dreading. It was Wolf Creek from 2005, written and directed by Greg McLean, starring Nathan Phillips, Cassandra McGrath, Kesty Morassi, and John Jarrett. It's about three backpackers who become stranded in the Australian outback and are befriended by a local who turns out to be, surprise, a sadistic psychopath. Did you find anything redeeming in this at all? Here's why I recommend it. YOLO. <laughs> Yo. Feel hashtag, the fear. It's the first YOLO. time I've ever said that in my entire life. Feel the fear and do it anyway, I say. Are you generating memes before my very eyes? I guess so. I do recommend this very much. Now, I watched the making of this prior to watching the film, by a distance of many months, actually. Fortunately or unfortunately, it showed a lot of the major set pieces. So it had the effect that the viewing was actually less intense than I was worried it was going to be. It took a bit of the sting out of it. It was still terrifying. I find stories about wrong place, wrong time to be intensely frightening. And it became even more terrifying when I fell down the wiki wormhole of reading about Ivan Milot, who Mm. was one of the inspirations for the story. The worst part being that a backpacker had identified him and it still took months before he was caught. It's low down and gritty and lean and mean and really scary, and it takes its time. I came to this one from you, so I'm assuming that you're going to recommend it as well. I would. 
I would say the reason you should watch it is because you like to feel bad. Which you know if you listen to the show at all, I'm a huge proponent of the idea that not every movie has to be fun. That, to me, is a shallow pursuit. What are you going to do, watch Busby Berkeley movies your whole life? Hey. <laughs> hey, you guys. One of the main functions of horror films is so that you can safely indulge in and examine your fears. And if you're going to do that, don't go halfway. Go all the way. Day 18 is a bit of psychological whiplash as we move from Wolf Creek to The Haunted House from 1921. This is a short film, a two-reeler that we watched, directed by Buster Keaton and Edward Klein, starring Keaton and Virginia Fox. In the short, Keaton is a bank teller who becomes involved in a holdup, then gets mixed up with some counterfeiters and a theatrical troupe posing as spooks in a haunted house. Why you should add this to your list? It is full of sight gags of a Halloween-y nature. If you're looking for something really inventive and clever and fun that also won't take up a lot of your time, and be a nice diversion in the spirit of the season, this is fantastic. It also has more plot and secondary characters than you'll see in ten other two-reelers. Plus, there is a fantastic moment in it where he takes directly to the camera while running at full speed, and it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I was going to say that as well. That's can, my favorite part. I can tell from the face you made yeah, while I was saying you, it. buddy. <laughs> Why should you watch this? Because it's Buster Keaton. We don't need to say anymore. Do I need to draw your picture? Well, I can't because I'm not a good artist. Anyway, he's wonderful. You mentioned his inventiveness. I don't really have anything else to say. You should watch as much Buster Keaton as you possibly can. And we kept going with other shorts after we watched this, too. It was a great night. Now, we continued in this somewhat lighthearted vein with Day 19 and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad from 1949. The Ichabod section is narrated by Bing Crosby, and I didn't actually know that the Mr. Toad part came with this, essentially. I had never seen it until a few years ago, so I only knew it as Ichabod Crane or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This has been a favorite since childhood. I love to watch it regularly. It's got beautiful animation of the fall New England period. It's got a really fun score. Bing Crosby does the voice work in this, and he's never better than at this point. And I find myself waiting until that great moment when you finally get to see the Headless Horseman. That is one major reason that I would recommend it. You come for the Headless Horseman, that iconic chase sequence where he throws the jack-o'-lantern. It's one of my favorite animated sequences of all time. But you stay for Mr. Toad. I know it's not the Halloween part of it, but Mr. Toad is a freewheeling blast. I love that guy. He embodies everything about having a good time all the time in the most generous and loving way. It specifically mentions how he never counts the costs. And that creates some problems for his friends that are constantly having to clean up his messes. But he does it with a generosity of spirit. It's not malicious. He is having a grand time, and he just wants everyone to have a grand time, and it's full of adventure. So I would say watch it in reverse order, Ichabod first, and get your spookiness. But then, if you want to really end on a high note, Mr. Toad is a blast. It's got that great vocal performance by Eric Bloor, one of our favorites. Oh, absolute favorite. We kept going in our animation kick with Day 20. Day 20, we watched 
It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, from 1966, directed by Bill Melendez, written by Charles M. Schultz, and voiced by Christopher Shea, Peter Robbins, Sally Dreyer, and Kathy Steinberg. Originally broadcast on television, it's about the Peanuts gang celebrating Halloween while Linus waits for the arrival of the Great Pumpkin. Hey, guess what? I got a popcorn ball. <laughs> I got a rock. That's the best. <laughs> Why I would say to watch it? A couple of reasons. One thing I hadn't noticed before as a much younger viewer, the backgrounds during the twilight and evening scenes are incredible. They're almost psychedelic in their execution. The art behind the art is beautiful. The art in the foreground is also fantastic because it's full of rich fall colors. Snoopy's dogfight scene gently encourages imagination, and the thing as a whole is not hyperactive or exaggerated like so many animated things are now. There's a real genuine sweetness to it, even with Lucy the bully, who practically simultaneously calls her brother a blockhead and makes sure that she gets candy for him while she's trick-or-treating because he is waiting for the Great Pumpkin. My favorite thing about it, though, is that it's just representative of just about every type of kid. There is someone that almost every young viewer can identify with and latch onto as, that's me, I'm that member of the Peanuts gang. And I think that's a great thing. That sort of representation is a fantastic thing for young viewers. The Christmas special for me is still far and away my favorite. There's something very beautiful and solemn and extraordinary about it. This is wonderful as well. I hadn't seen it for a very long time, so a lot of it was actually quite new to me. And if you want to see and hear correct punctuation, grammar, difficult vocabulary words out of the mouths of children, this is for you. And the very best part is Snoopy's cabaret dance. <laughs> so watch its use of language and stay for the dance. I give it five Dolly Madison treats out of five. Next up, we're coming to the end of week three, night 21. What do we have there? Speaking of night, we have Night of the Demon from 1957. It's directed by Jacques Tourneur, starring Dana Andrews, Peggy Cummins, and Niall McGuinness. And it's the adaptation of the M.R. James story, Casting the Runes, from 1911. It's about an American psychologist who comes to England to investigate a satanic cult suspected of more than one murder. For whatever reason, I forget each time, and I've seen this many times, that it's directed by Jacques Tourneur, mm. which seems crazy when you watch it. It's nothing but wonderful shadows and really interesting places. I recommend this because you see a great story from a great piece of source material get elevated so much more by the production team. It's got an excellent cast, especially with Niall McGuinness. He's absolutely my favorite, and you know I'm a huge Dana Andrews fan as well. To say the least. Yeah. It's so far above the rest of the things that might fit into this subgenre. The shadows dominate the view when it's not daylight clarity, and all the characters are wonderful to follow. There was definitely some controversy around this version. A creature was inserted by the producer over the major protests of the director and also from Dana Andrews. So decide for yourself if you think it lends to or takes away from the film. 
Well, all of my reasons for recommending it pretty much dovetail with yours. The source material being M.R. James is unimpeachable, one of the greatest English-language ghost storytellers of all time. Niall McGuinness as Julian Carswell is also my favorite character and one of horror cinema's great villains. He is so sly and understated, but also so easily wounded and petty at the same time. His menace is always suffused with a slight amusement, never more so than when dressed as a clown, entertaining at a children's Halloween party in which he engages in a little bit of black magic. I think on this one we are exactly unanimous. Day 22, I think, brought us another black and white gem. Oh, without a doubt. Day 22 is Onibaba from 1964, directed by the great Kaneto Shindo, who also directed Kuroneko, one of the spookiest Japanese horror films ever made. It stars Nobuko Etowa and Jitsuko Yoshimura. This was the penultimate entry in our folk horror screening series. We tried to move it around geographically a little bit. So much of the greatest folk horror comes from the UK, but we did want to represent other cultures as well, so we have a Finnish entry and now this Japanese entry. And in this one, in the 14th century, during a period of intense civil war in Japan, two women kill samurai and sell their belongings for a living while the younger of them is having an affair with their neighbor. In the meantime, the older woman meets a mysterious samurai wearing a bizarre mask. Why to watch it? Like you mentioned, the photography establishes an atmosphere that's unbelievable. Even the things outside in daylight feel subterranean, practically. Aside from that, the thing I love most about it is that it is refreshingly frank in its treatment of the human body both as object of violence and instrument of dark eroticism. The thing is fantastic. I absolutely loved it. It's so gorgeous from start to finish. What stood out for me was the music. It's almost incidental in some periods, and so the silence otherwise just exists. And it's broken up by intensely rhythmic work as well. It's got a wonderful pace and rhythm and tone to it. Next on the docket for day 23, we have Don't Be Afraid of the Dark from 1973. This was a TV movie directed by John Newland, starring Kim Darby and Jim Hutton, in which a housewife unleashes a band of goblin creatures from within a sealed fireplace in the Victorian mansion that she and her husband are restoring. Why I would recommend to watch this one very specific moment that resonates with me now, probably far more than it did when I was young when I saw this, they were scary for two completely separate reasons. The thing that hits me the most now is her forlorn scream as she is finally dragged down the chute. There is no happy ending, and that was really striking to me as a kid it was my very first instance of confronting the notion that there's no more everything is going to be all right. And I still feel that way when I'm watching. I don't know that the creature effects still affect me the same way that they did when I watched it when I was six, which was terrifying. It came out around that same time period, that trilogy of terror with Karen Black and that very iconic sequence with the fetish doll that came to life. It's all in that television movie wheelhouse, some of which ages better than others, 
How did you feel about the creature effects? It was my first time, and I think it's aged really well because I found them to be incredibly creepy and progressively so. Was it the capacity for violence that they displayed, or was it something else? It starts with the first quick glimpse of them, which is really off-kilter. We don't know what size they are. They're coming from below us. And then there's the actual design itself where they look like odd pumpkin heads or sort of shrunken turnip heads. I'm not exactly sure what they are. It's as if they are of the earth, but not from the earth. It's, it's very odd. I also really appreciated her life as a housewife struggling to be understood and heard and believed. For me, this goes on the now perennial list of something that I want to watch each season. Speaking of perennial favorites that we have in our regular rotation, Day 24 was Halloween from 1978, directed by John Carpenter. If you would like to hear us discuss that one in much greater detail, you can go to our episode number 32. Day 25, what do we have? We have got Basket Case 2 from 1990, which before I go any further... I have to say I have a sentimental attachment to it. I've got my hand on your knee right now. Can you feel it? Uh, I can. It's making me romantic. This is the sequel to the first movie we ever watched together, Basket (laughs) Case 1. I do know how to woo a lady. You do. Basket Case 2, written and directed by Frank Henenlotter, and starring Kevin Van Hittenrick, Annie Ross, and Heather Ratray. In Basket Case 2, we catch up with Dwayne and his mutant brother Belial as they're being sheltered in a secret home for wayward freaks with journalists hot on their trail. Now, beyond the fact that if you watch this, you might get a wife out of the deal, (laughs) I do recommend this. I actually liked it even more than the first. Hmm. What I really enjoyed in this go-round, it's as ridiculous and kind-hearted as the first film, but it's the addition of the other creatures that really opens up the world for me. We get more ruminations on freaks in a regular world and regulars in a freak world. We also get to see Dwayne's haircut, where he looks now more (laughs) like Michael O'Keefe to me. I think it's fun and weird and lovable. Why I would recommend watching it? The romance. If you've ever wanted to see two gelatinous abominations, bump uglies, and I mean that most literally, then you have struck gold. I like how over the top this thing is without sacrificing its self-awareness. It knows exactly what it is. It's miles apart from the first one, and I think I like the first one a little better and you like this one a little better. The former's charms appeal to the trash thing I like so much. Yeah, it's pretty gross to me. It is... Very low rent. While this one obviously has a superior budget that allowed them to increase the weird quotient exponentially, I agree. It's super fun. Just put your tongue firmly in cheek and enjoy. I think we covered some more weird territory with our next film. Most definitely. Day 26 was the title, I think, that you were most dreading just based on the title itself. Yes. Horrors of Malformed Men from 1969, directed by Teruro Ishii, starring Teruro Yoshida, Teruko Yumi, and Tatsumi Hijikata. 
you have a real aversion to grotesques. I do. And this one, just based upon the cover art and the title itself, had a little bit of dread in the pit of your stomach going, I'm pretty sure. I had to turn the case over. <laughs> so I didn't look at it for any long period of time. Well, as far as the action of the film, after escaping from an insane asylum full of topless women, a young medical student takes on the identity of a dead man to discover the true identity of said dead man, who is his exact double. This investigation leads him to a remote island where he discovers a laboratory of abominations and a crazed scientist performing gruesome experiments on live humans, not to mention dark family secrets. Why I would recommend this one? For the elements of the erotically grotesque and vice versa? It's my favorite thing on the list that we watched all month. Really? Oh yeah, definitely. It's filled with dark humor. It's also the most transgressive thing we saw, I think. It's a psychedelic visual feast once they get to the island. But more importantly, it plays disconcertingly on a variety of very specifically Japanese anxieties. Touching on everything from nuclear fallout to the atrocities committed by Unit 731. It may not resonate so much with an American audience, but this thing was so disturbing to Japanese audiences that it was banned for a long time and was only recently more readily available to see within the last decade or so. It was also a huge highlight of the month for me. The way I can explain it, if I can explain it, is to imagine if Robert Wilson made Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and put Bjork in it. Okay. You might get some vague sense of the visual awesomeness, for lack of any better word. I'm sure there are many, but that's the one that I can come up with right now. The pacing, the direction. I never knew what was going to happen next. I couldn't guess for a second. Thank God there was the huge wrap-up explanation ending to make it all clear to me. And I loved it. That might sound snarky, but it is not. With day 27, and as we start to get towards the end of the month, we get into the heavy hitter territory, as I think of it. We kicked that off with Alien from 1979, directed by Ridley Scott, with Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Veronica Cartwright, Yafet Koto, and Harry Dean Stanton. We follow a space merchant vessel who receives an unknown transmission as a distress call they then land on the moon that was the source for the distress call and find a mysterious life form. We saw this in the theater several years ago, and you asked me if it was the first time I'd ever seen it, I think because I jumped constantly. <laughs> and no, I've seen it many times, and I still jump every time. That's why I recommend it. It's enduringly frightening. It's got impeccable design, impeccable pacing, frustration and pathos, a wonderful cast that does much of the heavy lifting and it's fun to see how much horror can come from what is essentially a workplace drama when i watch it now everything seems pregnant the design the ship the lack of hard angles the sluggishness and you've already mentioned how terrifying that idea is to it you. is big recommend watch it every year why i would recommend it aside from all of the obvious things those things being it's so well made. It's well acted. The script is airtight. The design is fantastic. If you're looking for another reason, we all need a character to focus our ire on 
as much as we need one to identify with as a hero. Veronica Cartwright is that character. She of the constant crying. Think of life as a trip to the lake. And at the lake, as there frequently is, there's the big rock that everyone climbs to the top of to jump off. For some people, that's too scary. They can't jump, and that's fine. If you can jump, great. If you can't jump, great. I have no problem with that as long as you understand that your inability to jump does not give you the right to hold up the line. If you can't jump, fine. But if you can't jump, move. Don't make your inability to jump everyone else's problem. Her inability to jump got one of my favorites, Yafik Koto, killed. And I cannot abide that. So if you have someone in your life or in your workplace, like you mentioned, that is scared to jump, and because of that is messing everything up for everyone else, fast forward to this scene and pretend it's them getting eaten by an alien, and then stop it before Yafik Koto gets killed. And what did we watch for day 28? Day 28 was Rosemary's Baby from 1968, directed by Roman Polanski, based on a novel by Ira Levin, starring Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, and Satan. It's the story of a pregnant woman, there that is again, who gradually discovers that her actor husband has made a pact with a secret religious cult and that the true father of her baby is the devil. Again, this is another one that is impeccably made, and the reasons that it is on everyone's list year in and year out are obvious. The things I like most about it, Ruth Gordon can do no wrong. I love Ruth Gordon so much, I will watch her do anything. One thing, though, that I don't think gets enough attention is the building. The Dakota, where it was filmed, seems like it has evil in its very bones. That building is one of the scariest pieces of architecture at first blush that I think I've seen in almost any film. You don't have to be a believer either for this to work. You could enjoy it strictly as a parable about the corruptibility of humans and their petty ambitions, though the diabolical trappings don't hurt. I've got a soft spot for this one as well because my first job was in a library and I read a lot of novels of this period before I saw the films that were made from them. I count Rosemary's Baby, Helter Skelter, and Love Story in that <laughs> sort of realm. The big three. I didn't know what lounging pajamas were at the time. Rosemary has them on at some point. So I was really into the story first. And this, of course, as you mentioned, is an impeccable adaptation of that. I think you'll laugh. I think you'll be frightened. I think that there are wonderful moments where you're really going to feel Rosemary's pain. My absolute favorite character moment is the look on John Cassavetti's face when the women come back in the room after Roman has been talking to him and you know something has changed irrevocably at that point. And then for day 29, we have continued religious themes. Day 29 is also the finale of our folk horror series that we hosted. It is The Wicker Man from 1973, directed by Robin Hardy, starring Edward Woodward and Christopher Lee. In this film, a rigid and zealous police sergeant is sent to a Scottish island village in search of a missing girl whom the townsfolk claim never existed. He is appalled to find that the inhabitants of the island have abandoned Christianity and now practice a form of paganism. Why to watch this one? It is the pinnacle for me of British folk horror. It has no equal when it comes to that subgenre. 
The old ways definitely hold sway, and your sophistication means nothing. What do you find in it to recommend? Well, first off, I actually saw the ending on TV (laughs) before I saw the film itself. And you have to see the whole film to prepare you for what the ending really means. So when I finally got the chance to watch it in its entirety, I didn't know it was going to be so earthy and blunt in a really fun and provocative way. Mm. It upends a lot of assumptions. It's a great ride and it really stands the test of time. In other words, your God is not my God. (laughs) Speaking of, Day 30 finds us visiting The Exorcist from 1973, directed by William Friedkin, adapted by William Peter Blatty from his source novel, and starring Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, and Jason Miller. It's about the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and her mother's attempts to win back her child through an exorcism conducted by two priests. Why to add this one to your Halloween rotation? It blows right past that. It helps if you're a believer thing that I was talking about with Rosemary's Baby. It hurdles past those boundaries with no regard for your skepticism. That's Friedkin, basically, for you in a nutshell. Even with that, though, the hardest part for me to watch are not the supernatural sequences. The things that I find most affecting and disturbing are the medical procedures. Watch it for the discomfort of that. Particularly the pneumoencephalography. Linda Blair sells that all the way, and it is the scariest thing in the whole film for me. And I recommend this because it is still the scariest and most heartbreaking thing I've seen. I watched it first in high school with a friend, middle of the afternoon, door open, screen door closed. At a very inopportune time, someone, for whatever reason, threw a newspaper up against the screen door. We screamed our heads off. I waited probably 20 years to see it a second time, and it hasn't lost any of its terror for me. Well, I think that's a quality that all of these have in this final stretch, that they have proven themselves to be full of timeless scares. And the anchor leg here is no exception on day 31. We closed out this series with The Shining from 1980, and I think it was a great choice. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, who also adapted it from Stephen King's novel. Starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. It's about a family who heads to an isolated hotel for the winter, where an evil and spiritual presence influences the father into violence, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from the past and of the future. If you, for some reason, are looking for a reason to watch this, is it enough to say that in my 41 years, I still don't want to hear anyone say red rum anywhere (laughs) near me? There's that great sense that when Scatman Carruthers is killed, that anything could happen at that point. For some reason, I also find the travel sequence towards the beginning of the film to be really unsettling. So I think it bears watching and and analyzing. So there are so many psychic, supernatural, and also family elements to be terrorized by in this film. But I have a question for you. Okay. Do you fall in one of the two categories that Jack was already crazy before he came to the hotel? 
or does his arrival and the hotel's influence itself make him crazy? I think it's the hotel. That's the way I read it. He was troubled, but I do not think he was obviously insane prior to their arrival at the hotel. I think it is entirely the doing of the hotel that if not creates this within him, at least pushes him past a breaking point. And maybe also Shelley Duvall. <laughs> she was crazy from the word go. Danny's the only one that's got it together. Why I would recommend it? It puts a chill in your heart. I think it aims for and achieves something that not enough horror movies aim for. It makes you feel lost and lonely, which I think is a far greater and longer lasting achievement than just making you feel scared. It hollows you out and leaves you that way in a way that few films, horror or otherwise, can claim to. Now that we find ourselves at the end of the list, how do you feel about the month now that it is over? I had a great time. In going back over these films for this discussion, I think there's a huge variety to the choices. And I really hope, as we do with all of our episodes, that something is going to spark your interest and you'll seek some of these or all of them out. I know we didn't go into nearly as much detail just because of the format of this particular bonus episode. Do you feel like we covered everything well enough? I know that I will have every post-show regret times 31 after the end of this. <laughs> I am left, like I always am, when the minutes are ticking down on Halloween, with complete melancholy knowing that when I wake up tomorrow, it's 364 more days until we get to celebrate again. Well, maybe not quite that many since we celebrate all of October. But it's the saddest time of the year for me on November 1st. Do you want to do that little speech again and I'll sing memories <laughs> low in the background? That's okay. It is crushing for me, though. The greatest time of the year is over for another year. My birthday is just past. Halloween is over. And now I have to suffer through until we get to ramp up the horror again 11 months from now. Well, on that depressing note, <laughs> we find ourselves at the end of the episode. Yes, an episode that we hope becomes an annual tradition for us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our names there. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to say thanks to the people who shared the show or gave us feedback since our last episode. Jane Sankner. Aaron and Mark at Criterion Close-Up, who just did an excellent spooky show on The Vanishing, one of our favorite films. You guys should go check that out. Brian Sauer over at Rupert Pupkin Speaks. The After Movie Diner Podcast. George Eduardo. Jeff Duncanson, as always. The guys at Fuds on Film. Mike Scharf. Grindhouse Dave. Jay Allen. Nathan Kennett. And Tim Lego. I also wanted to say thanks to the guys at the Offscreen Podcast who left us a really nice review since last time. I checked out their show and they do a really fun and interesting show where they delve into the nuts and bolts of the screenplay before it actually gets to the screen. They do a really fun examination of what elements work and what elements don't, how well things translate from page to screen, and I would recommend starting with their episode about Comancheria, which once it got to the screen, was Hell or High Water. Fantastic and interesting episode. 
I also wanted to say a special thanks to everyone who sent me birthday wishes. I got so many that it would be impossible to run down the entire list, but I certainly appreciate everyone taking the time to do that. Thank you guys very much. We are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to subscribe, rate, or review us at either of those locations, that would be fantastic. We are also on Google Play for you Android users. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 